0: plushcare.com slash weightloss.
1: Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Egyptians see the life-giving Nile River as a gift from God, their birthright, Problem is, so do the Ethiopians upriver. As an enormous new dam takes shape in Ethiopia, negotiations on how to manage water flow are proving damn hard to resolve. And for many adventurers, all that back to nature stuff is passe. Our correspondent heads out with the urban explorers of England's abandoned buildings. New planning law proposals mean that these derelict sites and an obsessive hobby are at great risk. First up, though, on Monday, police in Hong Kong marched through the offices of a local tabloid called Apple Daily and arrested its influential owner, Jimmy Lai. He was charged with colluding with foreign forces, a crime that carries a potential life sentence. Agnes Chow, a prominent youth activist, and eight others were also arrested under the same law. All were released on bail yesterday. The arrests confirmed the fears of pro-democracy campaigners, that Hong Kong's freedoms are disappearing. On July 1st, the territory's chief executive, Carrie Lam, unveiled a new national security law imposed by Beijing. Activists worried about a broader clampdown on a city that has recently seen so much feverish activism, protests, and riots. But Mrs. Lam promised Hong Kongers would still be free to express themselves. It has clearly stated in Article 4 that people of Hong Kong, they should uh, be able to continue to enjoy the freedom of speech, freedom of press, of publications, protests, assembly, uh, and so on, and so on. Increasingly, that promise rings hollow. Jimmy Lai was arrested with some high drama. David Rennie writes Chagwon, The Economist's column on Chinese affairs, and it's based in Beijing.
2: We saw police searching his uh, very large and expensive home, and then he was led with his hands handcuffed behind his back around his own newspaper offices, accompanied by 200 police officers in uniform, who seized dozens of boxes of material and threatened journalists who were live-streaming the whole very dramatic scene. He's been charged with collusion with foreign forces, seditious words and fraud. And all of those crimes are crimes under the new national security law, uh, which
1: Beijing imposed on Hong Kong six weeks ago. And and why is his arrest so remarkable?
2: Well, in many ways, he's a kind of typical heroic rags to riches Hong Kong tycoon. He, like many Hong Kongers, uh, was born on the mainland in the province just across the border, Guangdong. He uh, was a stowaway on a boat into Hong Kong. Uh, age twelve, he got a job in a garment factory. He worked his way up. Uh, he traded stocks, got rich, uh, started a company that eventually became the fashion company uh, Giordano. But he also got politics along the way, and so in particular, the very brutal suppression of the democracy process in and around Tiananmen Square in June 1989. Uh, really kind of changed his worldview and he became much more political. Uh, Once he became much more political, uh, he started to suffer business losses and eventually sold uh, his fashion company because the Chinese shops were were being effectively boycotted. He has used his raucous tabloid newspaper empire to launch very severe political attacks on uh, his opponents in Hong Kong, uh, on political leaders in the mainland, And he is also, and this is why he's now facing these charges, he has gone to places like Washington and said to senior political figures in the Trump administration, other capitals, that they should sanction uh, the government in Hong Kong, that it's foreign pressure uh, that can make a difference. And that, since uh, the new national security law was passed, is deemed a, a serious crime of collusion with foreign powers. He faces potentially life
1: in prison. And he's not the only one who's fallen foul of this law.
2: No, that's right. In addition to two of his own sons who are being charged with fraud, we've seen some prominent members of the pro-democracy movement, in particular Agnes Chow, who's 23. She's a kind of really a very popular figure among pro-democracy activists, also very popular in Japan uh, because she speaks Japanese, and so she's been front-page news in Japan. Um, again, what is so shocking is that the party party, that she co-founded Demosisto was wound up specifically in order to try and give them some immunity against the national security law. But the police who arrested her told her that apparently the fact that she had been saying on social media that foreigners should help Hong Kong was in itself a breach of the law. One of the other co-founders of Demosisto, Nathan Law, who is in exile now in the UK, he is also apparently uh, been charged. And if he went back to Hong Kong, would, would clearly be locked up. Uh, Joshua Wong, perhaps the most famous of that young generation of, of, um, of very young activists, still remains unarrested for the moment, although he faces other charges. But he's still at large and tweeting and giving interviews.
1: And in the meantime, how have these arrests gone down among Hong Kong's people?
2: There's been a big response in Hong Kong, and not that long ago, you could have expected public protests. Remember, we had hundreds of thousands of people on the streets for weeks last summer. Since the new national security law has been passed, that kind of public activity is much too dangerous. People are even too scared to say what they feel on social media. So we're seeing uh, subtle signs of support. And one of the most obvious ones is that Apple Daily, the tabloid owned by Jimmy Lai, has been increasing its print run sort of ninefold to uh, more than half a million copies, which instantly sold out. Uh, His share price has shot up because people are buying the shares to show support. A restaurant owned by his family has had long queues outside. People are basically too frightened to to voice political opinions, but they're showing that there are still a lot of people
1: who want to show their support. So it sounds as if Beijing's new law is, is having the intended effect.
2: It's a very depressing moment, really. I mean, all of us who covered the protests last year were very, very struck by the cross-section of Hong Kong society uh, who were expressing real kind of contempt uh, for the mainland government, real hostility to the idea of Hong Kongers potentially facing trial in mainland courts. And, and there was a sense that the hearts and minds of Hong Kong were being lost last year and that Hong Kong was showing extraordinary defiance What's kind of depressing now is that this new national security law shows that Beijing is willing to use really extraordinary visible uh, tools of of legal repression to shut down that kind of opposition spirit in Hong Kong. And, you know, in terms of public protest, it's probably going to work because this law has been incredibly carefully Drafted, it's incredibly vague, it's incredibly broad, and it's self-enforcing in this very sinister way.
1: How so? What do you mean by that?
2: We're seeing members of the opposition, the pro-democracy opposition, uh, banned, for example, from running uh, for public office because they said that the law was a bad idea. And that apparently to say that the law is not needed is against the law, Uh, to say that Uh, As a pro-democracy politician, if elected, you would vote against government policies is now enough to get you banned. So we're seeing really that old promise of one country, two systems that the mainland government held out after Britain handed Hong Kong back in 1997 at incredible speed Uh, that is becoming much more like one country, one system. And that raucous, noisy freedom of the press, freedom of expression, the right to protest that people remember, the hundreds of thousands who protested all last summer, all of that is now illegal and punishable by a brand new secret police force. And in the case of people like Jimmy Lai, potentially uh, being hauled across the border to the mainland uh, to face trial in a communist-controlled court and then potentially life imprisonment simply for saying that foreigners should put pressure on the government uh, to preserve Hong Kong's freedoms. That's how far we've gone in such a short time.
1: But I'm just wondering, when this law was first announced, there was talk of how it might spark actually more resistance, that enforcing it might draw in the international community. But it's quiet, as you say, inside and certainly outside Hong Kong. It's been smooth sailing for this law.
2: Yeah, because uh, this matters more to Beijing than it matters to us. It's like when the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia and Hungary, it mattered more to them than it did to the world. We weren't going to fight a war over it. So, I mean, you know, we'll see, will Britain hold out the welcome? How many Hong Kongers will leave? How many will take up the passport offer? But no, it'll work because that's the thing about being a brutal dictatorship is uh, if you're willing to shrug off international condemnation, it will work. And, And international bankers, probably lots of them are silently quite pleased to see these troublemakers locked up.
1: Thanks very much for joining us, David.
2: Thank
3: you. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: For Ethiopia, the Grand Renaissance Dam isn't just a source of hydroelectricity, it's a source of national pride. When it's finished, it'll be Africa's largest twice as tall as the Statue of Liberty, as wide as the Brooklyn Bridge is long. It'll hold over 70 billion cubic meters of water in its reservoir, more than the volume of the Blue Nile River upon which it sits. Soon, it should be producing 6 gigawatts of power, enough to sell some on the cheap to neighboring Sudan. Now it's over 70% complete and that reservoir is starting to fill up. In Ethiopia, that's cause for celebration and street parties but some of their neighbors downstream are less excited.
0: Well, the dam has loomed over Ethiopian and Egyptian politics for decades.
1: Tom Gardner is The Economist's Addis Ababa correspondent.
0: It's a source of immense national pride for almost all Ethiopians, and it's seen as absolutely essential for pulling the country out of poverty. It's expected to double the country's electricity supply, and by exporting it to the neighboring countries, it will generate much-needed revenues and, and foreign exchange.
1: That's how Ethiopia views it. How about Egypt?
0: Well, for Egypt, 90% of whose population live along the Nile or in the Delta, it's seen as the country's lifeblood, its birthright and a gift from God, which, funnily enough, is also how the Ethiopians see it. The Egyptians are worried because they believe the dam will reduce the country's water supply. Egypt is already short of water. Its population has risen. The water supply per person has fallen. This is partly Egypt's fault, it uses 80% of water for agriculture. Jordan and Israel nearby opt for close to 50% by contrast. Egypt's irrigation canals are ill-maintained and leaky and its farmers grow very thirsty crops. So the situation in Egypt is particularly tricky That has not been helped, I should say, by the fact that Ethiopia has to date blocked proper impact studies. Ethiopia, for its part, insists that water will only be used to generate electricity. It won't be used for irrigating agriculture, on the Ethiopian side at least, so therefore will not reduce Egypt's supply. But for Egyptians, these assurances have never been enough. One former president even considered bombing it. And in June of this year, Ethiopia accused Egypt of sponsoring cyber attacks to disrupt it.
1: And so why isn't they haven't been able to to strike a deal to find a a diplomatic solution to this before this time?
0: Well, there's been basically since construction began a decade ago, talks over how Ethiopia would fill and operate the dam and how to resolve any future disagreements. These have more or less been unsuccessful, particularly the most recent ones. And most recently, the African Union tried to mediate. It should be said, most of the issues outstanding have been resolved. You know, Egypt wants Ethiopia to fill the reservoir slowly and release enough water so that the river's flow isn't disrupted. We're quite close to agreements around that. Essentially, there's two sides can agree what to do when there's enough rain. The question is what to do when there isn't. And Egypt wants Ethiopia to, to promise to release certain amounts of water to top up the Nile. It also wants binding international arbitration in case of future disagreements. Ethiopia doesn't want to promise anything, wants to take things year by year and settle any disagreements through negotiation. So that's basically the nub of the problem. But more generally, over the last 10 years, the dam has been used by governments of both sides, really, to bolster nationalist politics. They kind of use flag-waving jingoism around the issue to bolster their domestic political positions. This is particularly evident recently in Ethiopia last weekend. And there were mass celebrations here in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, marking the completion of the first stage of filling the reservoir.
1: The, the dam itself is mostly done. Filling has already begun. I mean, what happens if these talks just fail?
0: Well, to start with, it should be said, Egyptian taps will not run dry. There's enough water in the reservoir behind Egypt's Aswan High Dam to make up for any shortfall this year, which in any case should be minimal. The July filling of the reservoir took place during really heavy, above-average rainfall. But the mood is getting toxic. Last month, the assassination of a hugely popular Ethiopian musician and activist sparked mass protests and violence across the country. The Ethiopian government, the prime minister, as good as blamed the Egyptians for this. So that certainly contributed to, to a souring of relations talks were supposed to come to an end last month before the beginning of the, the the filling of the reservoir. That deadline came and went. We are now looking at another round of talks this month, but Egypt and Sudan have both pulled out. They're supposed to start again next week. But at the moment, relations between the two sides are, are, are so tricky. Positions are so fixed that it's hard to see how the the talks will progress productively in the coming weeks or months.
1: And what about in the other direction? If the rhetoric is heating up this much, if this is an existential issue for for both, could it come to to real conflict?
0: I think it's best to be cautious on this point. Egypt has long been wary of foreign wars uh, since its ill-fated intervention in Yemen in the 1960s. President Sisi has enough on his plate regionally anyway. Egypt's already contemplating involvement in the war in in Libya next door, don't forget. Similarly, Abiy, Ethiopia's Prime Minister, Abiy Ahmed, does not have a deep well of political capital. He's in a tight spot. Whilst there is a certain political utility to drumming up national jingoistic fervour around the dam, he doesn't want a regional war either. Most analysts and experts would say a real conflict over this is unlikely, but if talks continue to drag on and Ethiopia continues to fill this reservoir unilaterally without a comprehensive agreement being struck, then at the very least tensions in the region are going to worsen substantially.
1: And, and what, to your mind, would a, would a path to compromise look like? What could actually solve this, do you think?
0: The technical details can just about be worked out. I think it should be said that the fact that all sides have agreed in principle to continue talking despite Ethiopia beginning to fill the reservoir last month before a deal was struck. That shows that not all is lost. Wiser policies are needed all round. Subsidies which encourage Egyptians to waste water should be phased out as they're slowly beginning to be. Everyone should invest in solar power to take pressure off the Renaissance Dam. And as for the deal, Ethiopia should pledge to let more water through in long dry spells and let in international arbiters. But Egypt could compromise by letting the African Union play that role. Officials in Cairo have long believed that the African Union favours Ethiopia, where the African Union has its headquarters. But the group has done a pretty good job in a difficult situation in recent weeks in, in attempting to lead the effort towards finding a deal that works for everyone. Thanks very much for your time, Tom. Thank you, Jason.
1: plenty more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents subscribe to the economist to find the best introductory offer wherever you are just go to economist.com slash offer squeezing through the window of a boarded up derelict building to have a little look around might not sound like your kind of fun but there are some hobbyists out there who find it absolutely thrilling and they'll travel far and wide to experience it. I've done every mill in Bradford and that's including permission and obviously a bit sneaky. Simon Sugden is an urban explorer and the author of an upcoming book on the subject. Why I do it? Is to sort of show people what it was like back then. You know what what, what these buildings can offer still. You know they, they do have a second beauty to them. You know I've been in hospitals, I've been in a morgue, but again, some of these places a lot a lot of people won't see. So it's nice that people can see them and, and and appreciate that they do have a beauty to to these places. This trend of urban exploring is finding a wider audience online. But there are concerns these modern-day adventurers will run out of dilapidated buildings to explore.
3: Well, I'm not sure how much detail I can go into really for legal reasons, other than it took a lot of exploration, looking at satellite photographs and maps and scouting out whether people were working on the site.
1: Elliot Keim writes about Britain for The Economist. He recently went on an urban exploring trip to an undisclosed location.
3: We prepared our entrance through the back end of the site, which involved crawling under a fence, going through fields of stinging nettles. And it's an old barracks, an old military barracks. So there were lots of old military architecture around, pillboxes and watchtowers. There were also lots of old buildings, most of which kind of lacked roofs and some lacked floors, as I discovered when I got to the top of a flight of stairs and stepped into an adjoining room, only to find there was nothing but thin air beneath my feet and had to quickly leap back and hold onto a doorframe to avoid a sudden drop.
1: So why did you put yourself through all of this peril then? Why why do people want to do this?
3: Well, it's not hobby, that's for sure. It, it combines elements of social history and an adrenaline pumping addiction to trespassing on private property, which is always fun. The most serious oft- uh, urban explorers are kind of often working class and approaching middle age. They've been doing it for many, many years. They often grew up in working class places where there were lots of industrial buildings that had been empty to, due to industrialization. And they mix socially with skateboarders and graffiti artists, you know, who have their own uses for abandoned buildings quite a lot of these buildings provide snapshots of kind of forgotten history that lots of people don't necessarily know is there, but it's kind of preserved almost intact as how it was when it was left, albeit, you know, the odd floor missing.
1: But clearly you're dancing around some legal questions here. How legal is any of
3: this? Well, the pages on the forums kind of offer contradictory advice on trespassing laws and what you can and can't do. Although it notes that if in doubt, you do have to contact a solicitor. But urban explorers follow one sacred rule, which is take nothing but pictures, leave nothing but footprints, and they reject any claim that they're uh, what they are doing is wrong. Particularly the claim that what they do is breaking and entering. It's not. It's kind of trespassing at its worst possible point. But kind of as uh, Simon Sugden alluded to, there's a there's a bit of sneaky sneaky involved in how and how you go about it. But Nonetheless, they, they do on kind of mass reject the claim that what they're doing is illegal. Ruins have also become a cottage industry. So lots of latent landowners who own these sites have been leasing them out to specialist live action role play companies who use them as apocalyptic backdrops for airsoft battles or um, to fake uh, zombie attacks for stag nights and that kind of thing. But there are many concerns that some of these sites will soon disappear.
1: Why do you say that? Why are they more in peril now than before?
3: Well, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, doesn't like them very much. He's decided that they should be demolished more quickly and more efficiently to make way for new housing. That's upsetting a lot of urban explorers, as one might expect, who argue that these buildings should be converted rather than demolished and could easily make housing on their own in a much more stylish way that preserves the old way of life within the new.
1: And so I suppose it's a sort of existential question for urban exploring then if so many of these buildings are are now in danger.
3: Yes, urban explorers are a very passionate group. I don't think they're going to give up completely on what they love doing. But, but at the end of the day, they have, they're kind of fighting a losing battle now against these buildings. They're, they've lost their cause in a way. They, they always wanted for these buildings to be preserved, and that's gone now. So their main concern is kind of really letting people see the beauty and history of the abandoned buildings, although most of that will probably just become archive photography.
1: Elliot, thank you very much for
3: joining us. Thank you, Jason.